First Timothy chapter one and just the one verse there as far as the key verse or key text. Tonight we are discussing the necessity of the gospel. I typed up an outline and, and gave you that. It's not something that I normally do, but I do have a lot of scripture references, cross references. Um, for those of you who may be intimidated looking at the sheet, I'm not necessarily going to turn and read every single one of those cross references in this sermon. They will be referenced, um, might be quoted. There are some that I will ask you to turn to, but as I contemplated the necessity of the gospel, it was, it was difficult for me in a way, um, because there is so many offshoots at going through this study and, and prepping this sermon. It was like, well, I want to say this and I want to take it there and I want to take it there. But the beauty of having this conference is that uh, I trust that God is naturally going to take these sermons to their intended place that he has for them. And again, the goal is to build necessity, response, power, joy and assurance. And so my goal tonight is to really just give us a foundation for the rest of the, the sermons to build upon as we study the gospel together. Um, when we consider the necessity of the gospel, we could we could form it as a question. We could say, well, why was Jesus necessary? Or we could ask another question, um, why is it good news? When we tell others about Christ, when we tell others about the, the life, the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what makes that good news? Why isn't it just news? What makes it good news? Why was it necessary for Christ to come? And the, the answer to that, I wrote down two words in my, in my notes. I just wrote Adam fell. Or you could say Adam sinned as a two word answer. And to expand upon that, you could say Adam fell. And when he fell, mankind fell with him. Adam sinned. And when he sinned, mankind sinned with him. That's the biblical teaching on that. But before I ask you to turn to Genesis 3, we have 1 Timothy chapter 1 opened up here. And so I just want to read that key verse. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says there in 1 Timothy, of whom I am the foremost. And that will come up later in the sermon as well as we consider the necessity of the gospel. So. With that two-word answer in mind, Adam fell or Adam sinned, I would ask you go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. And I know that, that many of us here, perhaps all of us here tonight, we say, even if you weren't born and raised in church, you've been in church a good many years of your life. And you probably made a profession of faith many years ago and joined the church many years ago. And so there is always a temptation with a sermon like this, for us to say, okay, the preacher's talking about the gospel. I know the gospel. I was saved many years ago. I probably know what he's going to say. Oh, he's turning to that scripture reference. I bet I know what he's going to say. I would ask of you, fight those temptations as you listen this evening and let us all, myself included, really just contemplate the miraculous power of the gospel. The miraculous saving power of God. And if we are the recipients of that grace, if we have indeed been born again, let us rejoice in that 
as we consider these things once more. So, in Genesis chapter 3, we read, verse 1, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Sin has been present from the beginning. You get three chapters into Genesis, three chapters into scripture and boom. There was a command, a law given from God to Adam. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we just read the account where that is in fact the tree that they did eat of. We also see the the natural response to fallen man. Or for fallen man to God. The natural response is to run and hide from God. Run and hide from the presence of God. The natural response is not to run to God and seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation. The natural response is to run away and hide. On top of that, the natural response is to try to fix the problem ourselves. Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together and tried to cover their sin and shame. So they hid from God and they tried to fix the problem themselves. That is the natural response of man in his fallen state. And that is of importance because we might read that, and especially if we're witnessing or sharing the gospel, and we get we share this aspect of creation, and we share the fall. Some someone may say, well, "What does that got to do with me?" That was Adam. You're telling me Adam sinned. What does that got to do with me? And we go back to our to our answer: Adam fell. And the expanded answer: When Adam fell, all mankind fell with him. First Corinthians fifteen twenty two says, "In Adam all die." But in Christ shall all be made alive. Turn to Romans 5, if you will. Whoops. Romans chapter 5. And here we read in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. 
because all sin. In Adam, all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So, 1 Corinthians 15, and Adam all die. Romans 5, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sin. So we may be tempted to say, well, what does Adam's sin have to do with me? But the proper biblical understanding is, when Adam fell, we fell with him. That is the proper biblical understanding. If Adam and Eve needed to be reconciled to God and all sinners after them need to be reconciled to God, then we too had a need to be reconciled to God. Which brings me to, if you're following the outline there, the gospel has been present from the beginning. The gospel has been present from the beginning. The natural response of man was to run and hide in the garden. Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, they're noted there. I'm not going to ask you to turn to them, but Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, our natural state, like the rest of mankind, is children of wrath. That would be God's wrath. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, those verses that are referenced there, it says the the natural man does not accept, cannot understand the spiritual things of God. That's our natural state. So it's it's also good news that the gospel really has been there from the beginning as well. Now for the folks here at at Mindy's, they're going to hear me say this for about probably the thousandth time in the last year. But if you were to turn back, you don't have to, but if you were to turn back to Genesis 3, I'm just going to read two verses. After, after God explains to the serpent what's going to happen to him, which he tells him his head's going to be crushed, that foreshadows the cross. After he explains to Adam and Eve what, what happens because of their sin, we read this in verse 20 of Genesis 3. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That's the gospel. That day, Adam and Eve deserved the full wrath and the full judgment of God. They had already made fig leaves for themselves and tried to cover their own sin and shame. But on this day, they were not consumed in the wrath and the judgment of God. Instead, a substitute, a sacrifice died And from that sacrifice, Adam and Eve received a covering fashioned by God Himself. And He applied the covering. The gospel has been present from the beginning. No, we don't read that this pertains to Jesus Christ and this is a good picture of that, but we as believers, we know this and we should be prepared to share these things with non-believers that it has always been this way, that all things from the beginning point to Christ. That He will have preeminence in all things. Namely, the salvation of souls from every tribe, tongue, and nation all across the world. So sin has been present from the beginning, but praise God, the gospel has been present from the beginning as well. And we know that it is the desire of the Father that Christ does have preeminence in all things and that all things will be united in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. But for us here tonight, again, If you are a believer, consider that. If you're here tonight and you say, well, I know that I'm saved. 
The Spirit testifies within me, Abba, Father. I have a confidence, I have an assurance of my salvation because of Christ. Consider that you have received the covering that God has fashioned for us His children. And that covering is the very righteousness of Christ. That just as there was a sacrifice made for a covering in the garden, right after the fall, we have received a covering that is given and that takes place through a perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice. So now, I want us to consider the greatest commandment. Because again, especially for non-believers, if you've ever, if you've ever had the opportunity to witness and share the gospel and, and kind of get a little bit deeper into it where you're really explaining these things, an honest rebuttal may be, but still, I get it. I get what you're saying. Adam did this. And I know that the Bible says that in Adam all sinned. And, but I still th- you may even hear people say, well, I already think that's fair. That because Adam sinned, I'm guilty. Or because he did something that all of mankind fell with him. But And even us as believers, we can sometimes convince ourselves that we're doing a really good job of being a good person. Or as believers, we can convince ourselves, I'm doing a really good job of being a good Christian. So I want us for a moment, in considering the necessity of the gospel, I do want us to consider the greatest commandment. So turn turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. Pick it up in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment or the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, and the prophets. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you were to look at the, the other reference that includes this section in Mark, it actually is heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in a moment, we're going to look at what Scripture actually says about our heart, soul, and mind in our natural state so that we can really get the picture of this commandment. But before I, before we do that, this is why I wanted us to look at this. Again, we as believers, we might fall victim to this, but especially the non-believers, those that, that have not been regenerated, those have not, who have not been born again, who have not come to believe. We, in our natural condition, we're really good at convincing ourselves that we're a pretty good person. I don't know if you've ever watched videos or, or, or followed, followed a ministry of somebody who actively is out there like, Witnessing in the streets, walking the streets, preaching on street corners that they're actually trying to witness to people and teach them. They're not just yelling at people on a street corner. But across the board, if you, if you watch these ministries and track these ministries, if any of these people ever ask somebody, do you think you're a good person? Across the board, the answer is, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. And specific, let me, let me be even more precise and specific with this. Why this is of, particular importance to me is I grew up in these parts. I'm familiar with the Bible Belt and there's nothing wrong with, with, with what I'm about to say, but it can lead to some confusion because here in these parts, here in the Bible Belt, we say things like, 
Them's good people. Or that's a good man right there. I tell you, that's a good woman right there. And I understand what we mean. And there's no, there's nothing wrong with saying those things because we know what we mean with, by them at times. But when it comes to the spiritual aspect, we've got to remind ourselves that the biblical truth is there's none righteous, there's none good, no, not one. Okay? So where the confusion can come in is we might think of ourselves as good people. I'm honest, I'm hardworking, I don't cheat nobody, I don't steal, I don't lie, I don't do this, that, and that. I'm a pretty good person. And when we read the greatest commandment, we may even be tempted to say, Praise God, that's exactly how I try to live my life. That's what I'm doing right there. I'm trying to abide by that. I'm trying to follow that. Every day when I wake up, I tell myself, I'm going to lo- love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's that's what drives me. That's what I'm trying to achieve in my life. Well, let me just give a reminder. This is not a recommendation. This is not an encouragement in the sense that this is not given as a way to encourage us to say, this is what you should try to do. I encourage you, try this. It's the commandment. It's the law. Why was the law given? What does the law expose? Our sinfulness. If we say, yep, that's me. That's how I try to live my life. I'm trying to do that every single day so that I can please God. We're doing it wrong. We don't please God. We don't make ourselves right with God. We don't, we don't get justified before God. We don't, we don't gain acceptance with God through keeping the law. And I would add to that, this is certainly not original to me. Many other preachers have said this and many other Christians have come to this conclusion because it's a biblical conclusion. There is not a one of us who can say that we've met that requirement. That we do love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our strength and with all of our soul. There's not a one of us. It's not going to happen. When we read that, and then when we think about, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We think, okay, well, how am I doing on, how am I doing on those things? Have I ever, have I ever pursued anything other than God? Have I ever put my treasure, put my, put my joy in anything other than God? Now we're starting to understand the point. So now, let's look at some of the stuff that Scripture says about our heart, soul, and mind. Just by way of reference, you don't have to turn there, Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I know you're looking at me. I get it. It's not a good start. I know. It's not a good start. Matthew, already in Matthew, turn back a few pages, Matthew 15. Here, Jesus is actually addressing an issue that the Pharisees had become upset that his followers didn't wash their hands. They didn't go through a ceremonial cleansing or anything before they, before they ate. And Jesus here is talking about what truly defiles a person. What truly makes someone unclean? Is it just not following the laws, not following the, the rituals and the ceremonies of the law? Or, or is it something greater? Is it something more severe? Is it something more inward that defiles a person? Matthew 15, I'll start in verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach as an, and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth 
proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. Okay, so what comes out of our mouth comes from the heart. And that is what defiles a person. And he continued, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. If we were to read through the book of Ezekiel, we would see that we have a heart of stone that needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh. And so there's the heart. We'll, we'll leave it at that. John chapter 8, just by way of reference, in that section there, Jesus tells uh, the, the Pharisees, the Jews that are listening to him, he says, those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. And they were making the claim, we're not, we're not enslaved to anybody. We're the children of Abraham. We're free. And he says, anyone who sins is a slave of sin. Our souls, naturally speaking, not speaking here of the born-again individual, but naturally, in our natural state, we're, we're enslaved to sin. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, he takes it even a step further. I've already referenced this, but I would ask that you turn to it. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there's the state of our soul, dead in trespasses and sin, slave to sin, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what about our mind? You're already there in Ephesians chapter 4, picking up in verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Now, Gentiles here is a reference to the unconverted, the non-believers. And Paul is exhorting the Ephesian church, the church at Ephesus, to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Well, then we're right back there at the heart, aren't we? Again, by way of reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14 through 16, the natural man does not accept the, the things of God, the spiritual things of God, cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Our mind cannot comprehend the spiritual things of God. So how are we doing with the greatest commandment now? In our natural state, how are we doing with the greatest commandment? We've fallen short at each point. You say, oh, well, what about that other thing? You said in Mark, it says heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, well, how much strength does someone that has a heart of stone, their soul is dead in their trespasses and sin, and their mind is futile and darkened in its understanding, how much strength does a person like that have? We fall short on all accounts. Do we see the necessity of the gospel? The gospel is the only thing that shares the news that there is a Savior. There is a hope of salvation from sin, from the fact that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is hope. It is great news because the wages of sin is death. Christ died upon the cross. He was buried. He did not stay there. He is risen. 
He defeated sin and death for all who believe. Those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed. Do we see the necessity of the gospel? You say, well, what, what else saves somebody? Nothing. What other hope is there for redemption and rescue from sin? None. It was necessary for Christ to come, to lay down His life. Because how serious, how grievous is sin? It took the perfect, spotless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It took the perfect blood of Jesus Christ to atone for our sin. It was the only thing that would do. There were no other options, so to speak, loosely. There was no alternative. And furthermore, it was always to be this way. So that Christ would receive the glory as our Savior and as the Redeemer. And as the only mediator between God and man. It was always meant to be so. And so we see clearly the necessity of the gospel. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, which the greatest commandment is a summation of the law. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. We're not meant to look at the law and say, I can do that. We're meant to look at the law and say, oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm not good. Nope, I don't have a good track record there. Nope. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Can being a good person save anybody? <laughs> well, I've lived a pretty rotten life for, I'm 33, so I'm just going to use that as a reference point. I've lived a pretty rotten life for 32 years, but when my birthday was just a few weeks ago, I decided I was going to turn over a new leaf. I got 32 years of rotten living, but if the Lord will bless me with 32 more and then some, I'm going to have some good living on my track record. Well, what does that do for the 32 years that are already on the record? It does nothing. We, we, we don't become right with God by saying, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start being a better person. What does that do for all the times that you weren't trying to be a better person or a good person? It does nothing. When we truly, when God brings us to the place, when we come to the place where we, when we really see, and that's by the grace of God, that we really see the weight of our sin. The, the grotesque reality of our sin. For anyone who truly has been brought through that by the grace of God, you know your mouth is stopped. You're not trying to like reason with God anymore. You're not trying to like talk your way out of it. Oh, do I really need to? I've done some good stuff. Okay, here's the pros, here's the cons. Here's the good, here's the bad. Let, let me measure them out. No. You just say, God help me. It, it has to be Christ because there is no other hope. There is no other hope. So that brings us to the 
the main text there, Christ came to save sinners. That's the good news. Christ came to save sinners. God has not left us without hope. God did not, not in the garden and not now. God did not say, well, they sinned, they rebelled, I'll leave them to it. He prepared, He sent, He brought about the sacrifice, redemption, His own Son. And if anybody ever asks, well, why was Jesus here in the first place? Why did He come? To save sinners. And we as believers, we, I know, I know it's difficult at times, but we as believers every single day, we should rejoice anew. Christ came to save sinners and I'm, I'm one of His. Only by the grace of God am I, I don't have to worry about the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation of God because of Christ. He came to save sinners and I'm one. But we should also be so eager and so zealous to share that with the lost and dying world around us. The message of salvation. The preaching of the cross. Oh, but people think that's foolishness. Yeah, Paul wrote about that. It's been that way for forever. Well, people don't want to hear about that. I, I get it. But it's only the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. I'm not preaching your sermon, but by way of reference. We must be zealous to preach and to share the good news. And one last thing before I get to that final point there, Christ came to save sinners. We do need to be very clear on this as well. Earlier, I, I explained to you all a little bit about where the theme for this conference came from, the true gospel, why, and, and why that's on my mind, and why, why we chose that. And <clears throat> People do not need salvation from their problems. Now, here's what I mean by that. You don't get redeemed from your financial situation. You don't get saved out of your relationship problems. Okay? You don't get saved out of your depression or anxiety. That's not what we need redemption from. Okay? You don't get, you don't get saved from the pain of your past mistakes. You don't get saved or redeemed out of loneliness or you name the problem, whatever the world struggles with. We get redeemed, we get salvation from sin. All of those other things, anxiety, depression, relationship problems, financial stroke, whatever, all of those things are results of sin, you can say, or they're, they're symptoms of the true sickness, the true illness. Christ came to save sinners. The world does not need believers to present Christ in such a way where we say, come to Jesus and He'll cure your depression. Come to Jesus and He'll fix your financial problems. Come to Jesus and He'll fix your marriage. He'll fix your family. Listen. Christ came to save sinners. And that needs to be said. Well, but that, oh, that just, that rubs people the wrong way and that offends people. Christ came to save sinners. Paul told the crowd in the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay? And then say to, you know, just lay their burdens down and, and turn to Christ for, for 
cure of your problems, your issues. Repent. What do we got to repent? We're sinners. Repent and believe. And that is so important. The true gospel. What is the true gospel? Repent, believe. The gospel, the good news though, Jesus Christ was born. He came to save sinners. He lived a life. Perfect, spotless, sinless life. According to the scriptures, He was crucified. According to the scriptures, He was buried. He's risen again. According to the scriptures, there's a very simplistic presentation of the gospel. By the way, it's not original to me. You can turn to 1 Corinthians, read it for yourself. But the reason that it's good news is because we're sinners. We are the enemies of God and only Christ remedies that situation. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, I will say this. For if your wills are turning and for deep thinkers, yes, as believers, do we know that there is true joy, true contentment, true satisfaction, that there is that there is healing in Jesus. And I'm talking about spiritual healing, but there's healing in, in Christ. That we are redeemed. And yes, there are things in our lives that may get better and God may bless those areas of our lives. Absolutely. But that is not salvation. There is blessing. There is, there is great blessing in we are to walk in the light as He is in the light. And as we walk in obedience and as we serve the Lord with gladness and as we, as we show the love of Christ to those around us and, and again, even that is obedience. As we walk in the light as He is in the light, yes, there is, there is blessing in being a child of God. We, our minds are renewed. We have a renewed mind. We're given a heart of flesh to replace that heart of stone. We're given an entirely new life. We're a new creation. So are there people who they used to battle with depression or they still may even battle with depression, but they feel as though they've gained a victory through their faith in Jesus Christ? Amen. Are there marriages that have been healed through through both parties coming and repenting of sin? And, and if they're unbelievers, they do, they're born again and place their faith in Jesus Christ and the, the marriage is healed? Of course. I'm not saying that none of that exists, but that's not salvation and that's not the gospel. We don't present Christ as a, as a cure-all to all our earthly maladies or anything in life that just makes us uncomfortable. Oh, you should go to, you should go to Jesus. You should try Jesus. That's, I'm gonna, I'm not necessarily on a soapbox. I know I'm behind a pulpit, but I heard that one. It had been a while since I'd heard that. And I, I heard that one again for the first time in a long time, just a few days ago. And it, it still gets under my skin just as much as it always has. You need to try Jesus. No, no. For the non-believer, guys, we, we've got to understand this. Non-believers are enemies of God under His wrath. Okay? They need the gospel. They don't need to be told, oh, well, you, you can have a more comfortable life. Oh, well, you can have a more blessed life. Oh, well, you, God can fix that. God can fix that thing you're struggling with right now. He can fix that. He, you can have a better life. They need to be told, you can have life. You're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. Listen, your problem isn't your marriage. Your problem isn't your finances. Your problem is not whatever else. Your problem isn't even the depression, the anxiety, the, the fear, the whatever. That's not your problem. Your problem is you're dead in your trespasses and sin. 
You need to be born again. The necessity of the gospel. And it's got to be the gospel. Not some weak and cheap and watered down version of it. And not some slick, sleazy presentation of it. Not some bait and hook situation where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get them to come to Jesus like this. I'm going to get them to come to Jesus with what they already naturally desire. No, that's not the gospel. So, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. You see there in the notes, I typed out bad and good sinners. And my wife already asked me earlier, she said, what does that mean? <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> I want to use the example of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I want to read through this briefly. So Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Hold on to that. That's going to be your good sinners. Okay? But they And they treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So one, the most righteous of the righteous. One, the most evil of the evil. We all... We still to this day despise tax collectors. Okay, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's very easy for us at times to categorize sin or even accept certain sins while absolutely rejecting other sins. So bad sinners... I'm going to pick on the tax collector a little bit. Somebody who doesn't seem by all outward appearances, they're not, they're not trying to live a godly life. They're not trying to, uh, <clears throat> they're not trying to have any religious activity in their life whatsoever. It's not like they go to church. They don't acknowledge God. They may even deny God. But they're, they're not even trying to put on a front like they're trying to live for the Lord and serve the Lord. In fact, they may boast of their sin. They may have no problem telling you how many people they've slept with, the parties that they attend, the stuff that they've been a part of, the drugs that they've done. They may, they may, they may have no problem telling you how they got the money that they have and how they swindled people out of that money. We would look at, we'd say, well, that's easy. They, they need Jesus. <laughs> Those are easy marks. Clearly, they need the gospel. So we may say that their sins are more obvious. It's easier to discern. There's no disguise or appearance of righteousness. They just are bad sinners. They need to be saved. But in an area such as ours, where most people, to share a joke that you've probably heard before, <clears throat> we hear people say, well, I, I was drugged when I was younger. My parents drugged me to church every time the doors were open. Or you hear people say, well, I've been in church since before I was born. 
Because even when I was in my mama's womb, she had me in church every time them doors was open. Amen. Here, going to church is just part of the culture. And still, for the most part, you just grow up going to church. One of my favorite things is still occasionally I'll ask people, where do you go to church? And they'll tell me and I'll say, who's the pastor? And they'll say, if you wouldn't ask me, I'd have been able to tell you. Well, who else goes to church there? Well, if I'm honest, I haven't been so long. I, I don't really know who goes to church there no more. But everybody's got a home church, right? <clears throat> and people here still have, we call it common sense, but we also just call it, just hear people sometimes, they'll throw the word gumption out there. Some people still use the word gumption. But just good old southern morals, I guess you could say. You know, my dad's here tonight, and although I tried my dead level best when I was growing up, most of the time to not work hard, dad did do his best to teach me hard work is good. You should work hard at whatever you do. You should have a good work ethic. And that is still, that is at least attempted to be instilled in children today by their fathers. And I had a mom who taught the importance of, of prayer and reading the Bible and, and trying to love people and being a good person to go back to what was referenced earlier and that's just it's part of the atmosphere around here part of the culture around here just how people are raised and in that atmosphere or in that culture where somebody says i've literally been in church since i was like three actually since i was a newborn as far back as i can remember i can remember being in church i know exactly where our pew was i know you know I know which which spot of the pew had my imprint in it. You know, that's where we sat. That was our pew. I remember the song leader. I remember. Uh, I remember when the church split. I remember when. I remember when we got a new song leader. I didn't. Nobody in the world thought he could carry a tune in the bucket, but he's turned into a pretty good song leader. Right? Yeah. You got memories after memory after memory after memory. We grew up in church. We grew up around it. We know the gospel. You ask kids, teenagers, adults, regardless of how they're living currently, if they grew up in church, say, what's the gospel? And they can spit it out to you. And they live a good life. They work hard. They're honest. They're not trying to cheat people out of their money at their, if they own a business, they're not trying to cheat people out of their money. They don't, they're not, they're not trying to swindle people. They're, they're good, honest, hardworking people. They tell the truth. And they're in church. And they're not just at church. Hold on. Don't get me wrong. They're not just in church. Church event comes up. They're there and they're helping and they're participating. Offering plate goes around. You best believe they're tithing. You better believe it. They get called on to pray in church. They ain't scared. They used to be scared. They ain't scared no more. They'll pray in church. They'll help organize stuff. They are active. But their heart is full of anger. Or perhaps greed. Or perhaps lust. They subtly get in the ears of other church members and they cause dissension because they actually like it. They like to know the negative stuff and they like to share the negative stuff with other people and they like to get in to people's ears with information. They like to know what's going on in the church because secretly in their heart, they just love control. They want their hands on everything going on in the church. Because they're unregenerate. 
they're not saved. But because they're in church, because they're on the membership role, because they tithe, because they're active in the church, it's much harder to discern what's really going on. And in some cases, these people, and it may have been us, it may have been us at one time. Listen, I'm just glad I'm not like that person over there. I might have some issues, but at least I'm not like so-and-so. I might have some stuff in my life that's not right, but at least I'm not as bad as those people. Well, brother, I, I just don't understand people like that. You know, I could never live my life like that. Not me. I mean, I, I could never get so low as to live the way those people over there is living. Pride, arrogance, and it's we don't understand just how powerful sin really is. To think of ourselves as above something, I would never do that. I, can't, I would never, I'd never get involved in such riffraff. The good sinners. The righteous sinners. To use a different word other than sinner, and this will make it more precise, there's the bad lost and the good lost. The Pharisee here was the good lost. He was just as lost as a tumbleweed. But how did he view himself? Oh, man. I'm doing everything I need to. I'm worshiping. I tithe. I fast twice a week. Some of y'all are like, I've never fasted twice in my life. We're Baptist. I'm doing all the stuff. There was only one of those men who went home justified that night. And it was the one who understood who he was, a sinner. Be merciful. And that's it. That's Again, our mouths are stopped. All we can say when we truly come under the weight of that, God, help me be merciful. But I'll, I'll give you yet another example. Our key text there in 1 Timothy 1.15, we know Paul wrote that. And in that verse he says, of whom I am the foremost. Now, I don't know about you, but when I I read that and I'm like, you know, talk about a man who wrote over half the New Testament. Paul, the churches he planted, the, the missionary trips he went on, the, the good works he did for the Lord. And he called himself the foremost of proof. How? Mm-hmm. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. Starting in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Hold on to that. Put no confidence in the flesh. If I can urge you to do anything, even if you're a believer here tonight, put no confidence in your flesh. Don't do it. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Listen to his track record. Here it comes. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was a good man. All right, I know we, back in the olden days, we, he was Saul. Before that conversion, right? Saul was a good man. 
He was a good religious man. He was a good religious man. As for righteousness under the law, he's blameless. You know what that means? I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm, I do that. I'm playing righteousness under the law. That's me. I live my life according to the law, and I'm so good at keeping the law, I'm blameless. I'm good. Hebrew of Hebrews. A persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's our only hope of salvation. The righteousness that comes through faith. That's it. Let me guarantee you something. Your religious acts, your good deeds, if Paul was here today, would come close. Would not come close. And Paul says of his good deeds, of his religious activities, I count them as rubbish. Not to be too crass here, but I count them as excrement. It's literally a pile of waste. And if there's any of us that say, well, I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm good with God because, listen, I don't miss a church service. I tithe. I pray. I read my Bible. I do the year and I do the Bible in a year plan. I read my Bible. I'm praying. I'm doing the stuff I need to do. I'm doing what Christians do. I, I help out at the church. I volunteer at the church. I do this. I do that. And those things, that's how I know I'm saved. That's how I know I'm a Christian because of all the stuff that I'm doing. Rubbish. Rubbish. Pile of Waste. Literally a dunghill. Is that what you want to put your faith in? Will that save you or anyone? No. We often forget as Christians that the ones who shouted crucify Him were the same ones saying, we are the children of God. And when they were saying we're the children of God, they meant the one true God of Israel. It wasn't, to put it in modern terms, it's not like the ones who were shouting crucify Him were Muslims or were atheists or were Mormons or were any other false religion that you could think of. These were the people at worship, at the temple. We are the children of the one true God. Crucify Him. If we are so foolish as to think that we cannot fall into the same trap, into the same deception of trusting in our own self-righteousness, then we truly are blind. The righteousness that we seek is the righteousness of another. Namely, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Paul says, I count it all as rubbish, the foremost sinner. And in 1 Timothy, he adds, he says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And earlier, he, he says what he was guilty of, a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy. So I know that that section of the sermon truly was for believers, 
for those who profess faith in Christ. Rather, I should say, not for genuine believers, but anyone who professes faith in Christ, we ought to examine ourselves at times. We ought to remind ourselves and preach the gospel to ourselves and ask ourselves, where does my faith truly lie? Who or what am I trusting for my salvation? The problem and the solution is the same for all people. Doesn't matter if it's the bad type of lost or the good type of lost. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus Christ and His finished work upon the cross. The gospel is necessary. The gospel is necessary. In Matthew eleven twenty-five through thirty, one of the probably one of the most commonly preached passages. Come unto me, all you who are weak or weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The burden of sin, when we truly, when our eyes are open to it, the burden of sin is unbearable, and we realize I need rest for my soul. But also when God brings those who are trusting in their own self-righteousness and trusting in their law-keeping, that burden, when our eyes are open to it, we realize, what have I been doing? I'm carrying this burden of self-righteousness. I need rest. And Jesus' words are the same. If you're weary and heavy laden, come. Come. And I will give you rest. The gospel is for the good and the bad. Or you could add one more. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The gospel is for sinners. And it's the only solution for sinners. So there is a great necessity for the gospel. This next section, I'm literally, I'm going to read these off the page. So if you have the page, you can look on them. If you are focused on your record of sins, I know I address strictly those who profess faith, but there's many out there that they're just focused on their sin. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've, what's in my past. You don't know how guilty I am. You don't know the wretched things that I've done. If you're focused on your record of sins and your guilt, these things do not and cannot hinder the power of God to save. Turn to Christ and be saved. Set free from your burden of sin and shame. But if you are focused on your record of good deeds and all of your religious activities, those things cannot and will not hinder the wrath of God, which will be poured out upon all sin. Turn to Christ and be saved. Set free from your burden of self-righteousness and law-keeping. In John 8, again, it is said, Jesus says, those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. There is only freedom in Christ. There is only salvation in Christ. As long as there are sinners on this earth, there is a necessity for the gospel. It is necessary for us to, we as believers, we believe the gospel. We, uh, we follow and we are obedient to all of Scripture because of the gospel, because of the good news of Jesus Christ and the eternal life that has been granted to us. And as we grow in that faith, we share the hope of the gospel. We share the message of the cross with all those around us. And before we close with prayer and a song, I do want to read that final note there as well. Many of us probably have a testimony that includes walking an aisle, raising a hand, or something of that nature. To those who are here tonight, you already profess faith. I just want to offer this as a closing remark and a reminder. 
We cannot place our faith or our assurance of salvation in anything other than Christ and His finished work of redemption. If we are looking back at a decision that we made, which may include walking an aisle, raising a hand, praying a prayer, or all of the above, we are not looking back far enough and we are looking at the wrong individual. We must look all the way back to the cross of Calvary and set our faith firmly and solely upon Christ, our Savior who has accomplished our salvation. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He will have preeminence. And even when we share our testimony, it must be Him. We're not saved because I, because I did this. We're saved because of Christ, Him alone. So as we close, this is how I would like to do this tonight and each night moving forward.